Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Yes, hello out there, everyone, and welcome back to None But the Brave, a presentation of Evergreen Podcasts. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy, Flynn McLean. And Flynn, we start the show tonight. This is our fourth season premiere. It's hard to believe we've done that many episodes and people are still listening. Yeah, it's very humbling to know that people are are listening to us and we appreciate that. And uh, we've done a lot of retro retrospective, so to speak, on Bruce's career. So we're looking forward to doing covering some current stuff. Yes, we're going to be covering some current stuff, I think, for the next year or two. As he releases a new album, which we've gotten some more details on. And then, of course, there will be the East Street Tour in 2023. Yeah, we got uh, we heard about this new album, this Soul Covers album. And we got some uh, some leaked information this week. Sounds like it's going to be called Only the Strong Survive. We got 15, 15 songs and a, a track listing and uh, release date set for November 11th, according to these reports. And. We can expect an announcement, sounds like, this upcoming week. Yeah, that's very exciting. And what we're going to do is when the official announcement is made, we expect the single will be released with it. And we will definitely do some sort of mini episode to cover everything and our reaction to the first music we're hearing from Bruce since he released Letter to You. Yeah, that's going to be interesting. Even though these aren't Bruce originals, this is still Bruce music. Uh, He's a... I'm sure he's come up with his own arrangements or at least put together his own version of these songs. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be really interesting, to say the least. Oh, yeah. Let's not get too much into it now. But if you go and listen to the original tracks of these cuts, it's incredibly exciting music, up-tempo and and energetic. And you just get the sense that Bruce is going to kill on this. But let's not talk about it too much now. Fingers crossed that we are going to hear something this coming week. And in the meantime, let's move on to our main topic tonight, where we're going to be discussing the 40th anniversary of Nebraska. And uh, I think much of the story takes place on January 3rd, 1982. Well, actually, I think we need to back up a little bit more. I think these are songs based on Bruce's notes that he wrote to Landau with the tape as I was going through the songs book. And that Bruce was had been re- writing those songs as early over the previous three and a half months, and actually some of the songs even date back to to March when they were on a on a break on the river tour. So I think that the date January third is actually more of the mix down date. I think that's when they really sat down and 
decided to mix everything down, or at least that's when they put everything on tape. Right. And of course, as the famous story goes, he was working on a TAC 144 machine, a four track cassette player. And as we all know, the resulting tape that came out of that machine when they were done with that mini session became quite a task to translate for release when they decided that was the way to go. But I'm jumping ahead a little. Let's <laughs> let let's talk about what happened. Uh, obviously, Born in the USA is mixed in here as well. Where do you think we should start? Well, let's start with the song Nebraska, which Bruce had originally titled Starkweather because it was just a, a retelling, his own retelling of the Charles Starkweather killing spree that was uh, documented in the film Badlands. Uh, interestingly enough, that was the name of the film. <laughs> Terrence um, Malick, 1973. Yep. That's the one. And because he he wrote that that was like the last verse of that song where he talked about the meanness in the world in this world was actually that started this album that started the themes that would appear throughout the, the meanness in this world, the disconnects, the alienation. And I think that's where we really start. And he had done a lot of a lot of uh, research into that song, calling up a. Uh, Nanette Benning, I believe her net, her name was, who actually wrote a book called Carol about the the girl who was twirling the baton on on her front lawn, and so he put a lot of time into that one. He got a lot of the facts right, all the facts right, and then and ended with that verse, as I said, that really opened up the the album and the themes of the album, which aren't exactly the brightest. No, and you're correct. There's a tremendous amount of alienation and isolation on this record. And, of course, you point out the line that really sets up the whole thing where he says it was just the meanness in this world. And it seemed like Bruce was grappling at the time with his place in the world. We know from his autobiography and and from later interviews, he was probably suffering from depression at the time, even if he didn't fully know it. Uh, You're always the one who focuses on what his depression period is. What what do you think about that? (laughs) Yeah, I guess it's uh, even back then when he got off the road, he was severely depressed. And and that went all into all that depression went into these songs. And he was definitely isolated. He talked about just living on a, on a farm in Colts Neck, not the one he lives on now. And he sounds like he isolated himself even from members of the band. I, I was looking at Brian's book, Brian Hyatt's book, and even Max Weinberg did, didn't know what, what he was doing or even where he even was. So he was going through a lot of that himself. And typical of what Bruce does, he put himself in, in other people's heads and being where his own head was in that kind of isolation, that kind of depression, it, it wasn't didn't seem to be very far before he was in the head of this uh, of this uh, serial killer and or mass murderer, however you want to put it. And the rest of the album kind of kind of flows the same way. Atlantic City, debts no honest man could pay. You can bet Bruce was feeling that himself, and so it didn't take much to become the narrator in that song. And Johnny ninety nine. You know, guy lost his job and just he just loses it. And Bruce talked about, I believe, in his book about the constraints of of society. You know, you can feel if you feel alienated from that, 
then who knows what you can do and that's where he that's what he really explored on on this album there there's so much going on on this record and and it's interesting because as you point out the title track of course takes place in nebraska documenting the starkweather homicides and the rest of the album i i think Highway Patrolman is an exception too, but the rest of the album really takes place in New Jersey and very notably so. And and I think it points to what you're talking about with the alienation he was feeling because he sort of pours it out here in all these songs, stuff that I think perhaps he had been feeling since he was a kid. When you look at Mansion on the Hill and Used Cars, uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, that's a really good point. The fact that most of the album does take place in the great state of New Jersey, as you said. But then the title of the album comes from where Starkweather did his killings. And I, it's funny because for for a while there, when I was living you know, back in Maryland as a little as a teenager, I thought Mawa was actually in Nebraska. So it is I guess maybe he associates the Nebraska with kind of a. With an isolationness and being alone in the in, in the great in the great world, considering how uh, flat and unpopulated it is, I think there's a couple of ways we can go here today. And and w- it, like if we go back to Atlantic City, how should we handle? Obviously, we're going to talk about the songs, but what about the alternate path? where the band is recording these songs later on and of course it doesn't go very well should we address that now as we're talking about it do you want to address it after we go through the record well let's go ahead and do it now i think uh if you want to start with january 3rd 1982 the first thing that they actually did was they recorded with gary bonds for for a while there in in february uh of that year that's where you get lions den that ended up on on tracks but yeah, we've talked about the Electric Nebraska sessions from uh, late April and early May of, of that year. And that's, as we've talked about before, Electric Nebraska is one of these legendary, infamous things that we we want to hear. We want to hear it bad. But I think it's just mythical at this point just because we haven't heard it. I doubt if it's going to be anything that's going to be mind-blowing. I think Atlantic City, State Trooper... Johnny 99 and Open All Night are really going to be what are going to be the highlights of it. Uh, I think the rest of the the tracks, especially like Highway Patrolman and Mansion on the Hill, they're basically just going to be they're going to sound like what we've heard in concert uh, over the last nearly nearly 30 years. I can't imagine they're not going to they're not adding a guitar solo to Highway Patrolman or a sax solo to to my father's house and apart from those four songs it's really going to kind of be like yeah okay now what yeah I, I agree with you and and of course brian hyatt has plotkin chuck plotkin's comment that really the emotional experience of the tape that they were working on the the cassette that came out of the tiac was never really accomplished in the band sessions now it's easy to understand i think why that is because there's something so raw, and and this is why I brought up the two tracks, because it really, the two ways we could discuss this record really come together here. It's so raw what he had done that really he captured, I think, that sense of alienation that him alone in a room could not be duplicated. And we acknowledge that the E Street Band is 
probably the best band in the land, but they could not recreate what he had captured alone because it, it was about alienation and isolation. That is true. But when he when he started this project, what as he said in his book and, and other people have said, or as he told other people, he wanted to have a tape that he could take into the studio and say, okay, band, this is what we're doing. And he wanted to eliminate those long overwrought sessions that he had ex- experienced on, on working on darkness and the river. Didn't and work out that well. No, it did not. They, they realized that <laughs> what they had there was, was that was it. That's what, that was the album, but they did attempt them. I think they, they recorded eight out of the 10 songs. It's ironically state trooper is not one of the ones they recorded. My father's house was also, was is the other one they did not record. Now, one thing I do want to say about Electric Nebraska and those sessions is that it's not necessarily these songs that hold some kind of mythical appeal. I think it's it's it would be stuff or material that from that same era that didn't end up anywhere. I would love to hear was it called a gun in every home? Wasn't that one right. of the songs recorded? I would love to hear what that sounds like. Because I wonder if it, if it sounds anything like like the state trooper arrangement from the 84-85 tour. Or if there are any other songs that were attempted kind of in that same vein. Um, I think there was another rumored song was called Whispers and Screams. You would think that would lend itself to to such a, a scary or, or interesting arrangement. And not just countrified versions of, say, Mansion on the Hill and, and Nebraska. Now, I do want to point out for people in case we have new listeners that haven't gone back to the beginning of the show. We did do a show on this topic, the Born in the USA sessions, 1982 to 84, all the way back. It was the third ever episode of the show. Now, we were a lot less polished then, but it is, I think, worth listening to expand on on this topic and the outtakes. So you may want to go back and listen to that as well. But getting back to Nebraska specifically, so they're in the studio They're working on all these songs. Uh, How many songs is it? Like 80 songs that cover both the Nebraska and the Born in the USA sessions. And he has this tape that has been carried around in his shirt pocket. (laughs) And now they decide that they're going to put that out. So as we know, there was a massive effort to try and get it to sound right uh, on the vinyl. They were having a real problem cutting the vinyl. They finally worked it out and they did go ahead and release Nebraska, as I said, on September 30th, 1982. When it arrived, now you weren't a fan yet, correct? I was not. I was not. It's funny, and I, and I love telling this story because I went to Record World on the Miracle Mile in Long Island, and at the time, I was a fan. I had, of course, bought The River when it came out. I Born to Run was being worn out in my cassette deck day after day after day, and I went into the Record World, where which we'll figure in when we talk about Born in the USA, but I went into this Record World, and there was a t- I must have been, well, let's see, I was 14. And there was a teenage clerk there and Nebraska come out. And I was like, I really like the river. And the guy said to me, you don't want to buy that one. He basically compared it, I think, to using it for a Frisbee or something <laughs> of being the only value. And of course, sitting here now, many years older and hopefully wiser. I mean, that just seems so 
ridiculous that he said that to me because this is now Bruce has multiple masterpieces. We know that. I mean, I think we're we're all going to agree Born to Run is a masterpiece. Darkness is a masterpiece. Born in the USA is a masterpiece. And certainly this record is a masterpiece. And in many ways, one of his most influential works. So it's so funny that the guy said that to me. And of course, I didn't wind up listening to Nebraska I think really until I saw the Born in the USA tour. And even at that point, I don't think I fully understood it. Do you remember hearing the record for the first time? Well, first off, I kind of have a similar story to you. I was just getting into Bruce. I was I was on the 85 bandwagon and there was a guy at school. He was also he was already a big fan and really into him. And I, I said, well, hey, hey I, I'm thinking of getting the next album. Would it be Darkness or should I get Nebraska? And he said, get Darkness. Nebraska is a bunch of, of acoustic shit. So uh, <laughs> fast forward about uh, 14 months, 16 months, and I got it for Christmas. And I actually it hit me really hard. I, I was probably in some kind of depression at, at, at that point, and it hit me. I mean, I didn't understand it like I like I would now or like I do now, but it did hit me kind of hard. I remember listening to it on my parents' record player and really feeling feeling everything that as much as much as I could at that age, hearing the the harmonica intro to, to Nebraska and just being like, wow, this is yeah, this is different. This is very different. And. Yeah, <laughs> it was pretty powerful, powerful to the end. And I think that's what we should kind of talk about is that it was different. Oh, Bruce, yeah. Bruce had released, what, a string of five consecutive rock albums. Uh, his previous three just cementing him as one of the premier rock stars of the late 70s and early 80s. And here he comes, here he releases this non-rock album it's people call it folk and i don't even, i'm not even sure that's a that's a, a good a good description either i don't know what to call it actually but certainly it's solo maybe singer songwriter but that that even seems a little a little trite but he released this incredibly powerful set of songs and it was obviously there was no top 10 single there was no hungry heart on this album but I guess there was Atlantic a video City. that he did not appear in. Yeah, the Atlantic City video that just showed images of of, of that city and in, in black and white and shot from shot from a moving car, and but it was received very well, at least at least by the critics. Rolling Stone gave it what three and a half stars, four and a half stars. And Wait, well, three and a half stars would have been incredibly low for Rolling Stone at the time. It must have been four and a half. I mean, they gave Working on a Dream five stars. <laughs> yeah, but that was many, many years later. I also want to throw in that the environment at the time, like the the guy at Record World who made that comment to me, what was going on was you had just mentioned he had five rock records in a row coming off of Born to Run, Darkness, the River. Born in the USA, or what would become Born in the USA by the time it arrived, was truly one of the most anticipated records I think that ha has ever been in, in the rock world. And the hype had already started. People were not expecting this record. They thought that the next record was going to be this huge monster hit. And they weren't really wrong. It was, But that was the next rock album. He had this in him before that. Yes. OK, I just looked it up. They gave it four and a half stars. Okay, that makes much more sense. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because I think there were there were several Rolling Stone random notes in in, in the early yes, a hundred percent. 
that that kind of that was hinting at you know Bruce in the studio with the E Street Band, which which was correct. And but they he went in another direction, as as we said. So so Nebraska came out, and people, and then even after that, even the, the following year, they were expecting this rock album, and it wasn't for another nearly two years that that this that the monster album they were expecting as a follow up to the river finally hit the shelves we'll say now we are going to do born in the usa in the next episode it just makes sense so that's how we're going to go and we're going to talk about that weight and the build-up and certainly for me because i was already a fan that was a, a major part of that period for me in new york new jersey everyone was just waiting for this record to come and and then of course it did come and we'll get to the story behind that next time but as far as nebraska goes when I first heard it, now, as I said, I, by that point, I had seen Bruce. And wait a minute, you had, by the time Nebraska came out, you had seen Bruce? I did not listen to Nebraska until after I saw Bruce for the first time. Ah, you had said that. I thought you had, I didn't realize you had actually followed that guy's advice and not purchased it. I, I, I was an point. impressionable youth. You know, you're, you're 14 years old and you go into record world and, and the clerk behind the desk is like, you know, he's, yeah, like, he, he, he's like all knowing. That's what you think. The guy is working in record world. Like, how did he get that job? Yeah, was, yeah the, the people who worked in record stores, they were the, they were, they had a element of cool that we could only aspire to, <laughs> or at least that was their aura about them. <laughs> John, man, to go back to that period, because everything is so different now, of course, with the internet. And I don't think that this album would arrive in the same manner today, although they are still pretty stuck in their ways of <laughs> making announcements and, and, and releasing the record. So maybe it would. But this record did really throw people for a loop. And, and, and let's go track by track. Now, we've already talked about Nebraska. And imagine, I, you know, thinking back to the 80s, sitting there and this record coming out. And, and as we were saying, coming off the river in this big, massive tour and the E Street Band was about to take over the world. And people buy the record or buy the cassette and they pop it in. And, and the first thing they hear is this tale about a serial killer, which is darker than dark. And and then from there, it goes through a series of songs and, and, and let's move on to Atlantic City, which is honestly another song influenced by a movie because there had been a movie, Atlantic City, a Louis Mal movie. And it seems like Bruce was, he, he must have been really immersed in cinema at this point because it, Nebraska is, as you referenced, off of the, movie, the 1973 movie Badlands, where he was heavily influenced. And of course, Badlands was taken as a title by him in 1978 for a song on darkness, which it can't be a coincidence in light of everything else, right? I, I can't imagine that it was. But yeah, the movie Atlantic City, I never saw it. It was what, Burt Lancaster? Yeah, and Susan Sarandon. Oh, wow, okay. How early was that for her? It was pretty early, and, and the notion, of, of course, the most important line to me in Atlantic City, everything dies, baby, that's a fact, maybe everything that dies someday comes back, that really is sort of rift from the movie. So it's interesting, and we know there have been other cinematic influences over 
time with Bruce. We've talked about Tulane Blacktop before. And, and this album is particularly cinematic. He's telling tales. Nebraska itself is a tale. Atlantic City, of course, based on, again, actual events. The chicken man had been killed in March of 81. So he obviously wrote this song sometime between that period and at the time they the, of the January 3rd, 1982 mixing sessions. At the end of Nebraska, when the character says it was just the meanness in the world, I think that Bruce was really caught up in that. He was he was watching what was going on in the world and and there was a lot of bad shit happening. And and he also felt depressed, it appears. And and all of that came out here. Uh, Don't you agree? Oh, absolutely. I think uh, he'd isolated himself on that farm in Colesneck, as I said, and he, he cut himself off and he was obviously in some kind of depression. And it just the darkness of these songs just I mean, they didn't come out of nowhere they definitely came out of what was going on in his own head hi i'm hal schwartz from number the brave and i want to tell you about our exciting new sponsor distro kid distro kid is a service for musicians that put your music into online stores and streaming services like spotify you keep 100 of your royalties the distro kid app is packed with features you can check your streaming stats from apple and spotify upload lyrics and song credits. You can also get notified via push notifications when you've earned royalties. With Mixia, a powerful tool for those without access to professional mastering engineers, users can put the finishing touches on their track in minutes. There's a simple interface that is easy to use even if you're a novice creator. It's only $99 for a year with unlimited mastered tracks. DistroKid also has a new feature called Instant Share that allows you to easily share large files securely. Send tracks to collaborators, booking agents, and anyone else you want to hear your work. Your music will stream at the highest quality so you can make a great impression. And the artwork files look great, too. So check out DistroKid through None But The Brave's special link and receive 30% off your first year. DistroKid.com slash VIP slash MBTB. Once again, DistroKid.com slash VIP slash MBTB. Thank you. And yeah, that line from Atlantic City, that's the key line. You're, you you are yeah. correct. And But then it's interesting because it kind of makes it almost happy to say, put your makeup on, fix your hair up pretty, and meet me tonight in Atlantic City. That's almost joyous in, in a way. And then it's one of the few, even if it's fake joy, it's one of the, the few joy moments on this whole album. Well, I think the line, everything dies, baby, that's a fact. Maybe everything that dies someday comes back. That is also a glimmer of hope because it's the character recognizing, of course, we all going to meet our demise eventually, you know, and, and maybe there's something else out there. So that to me also at least provides a little glimmer of hope and that the the pain you're going through now, maybe you won't when you come back. Isn't that how you read that? Um, not really. <laughs> I think everything dies and, you know, maybe everything that dies, maybe comes back. And I, I don't. Right. Well, of course, it's not it's not definitive, but you, you could come back and it, presumably if you come back, you come back in a different form and, and maybe you're experiencing different things. I think in the context of Atlantic City, the fact that that city was pretty much so, so down, that city was so depressed and then 
it, it came back. They they put money into it, and but then of course then they had the the, the corrupted gambling commission, and the DA was going after them. So it was tough for, for them to even try to come back. And very ironically, of course, one of the <laughs> most important figures that plays into all this, we're not going to mention now, but I think everyone knows who I'm talking about. And, and you know, that's another layer to this, of course, which Bruce didn't know at the time. No one but knew at the time. No one knew at the time, but it, it is another layer when you look at what played out and what's contained in the song, what he was talking about in Atlantic City. You can't help, you can't help but laugh in a way. Well, let me be a little less vague than that, Hal, so people don't entirely think we're talking over their heads intentionally here. The son of the chicken man owned a casino, and he sold it to a certain real estate developer in New York City who would later become more than just a real estate developer, and we'll, we don't want to say his name. That is correct, and uh, moving on, we'll move on to Mansion on the Hill, but I did spend time in that person's hotels in the mid to late 80s with my parents, and I used to see him around all the time, and it, it just makes the whole <laughs> thing remarkable, but let, let's move on to Mansion on the Hill, and here we move fully in, I think, to his personal experience, and yes. Perhaps what he was feeling presently, but certainly what he had felt, I think, as a young man, uh, years before he writes this song. Because Mansion on the Hill, of course, is a song about being on the outside and, and looking in and looking at the wealth in the world that's out there and, and, and looking at what people have and you don't have. And we know it, it registered on him. Uh, yeah, I think this is one of the first songs where class, social class and economics class is, is so, so huge. It, it plays such a huge role in this song. It's the dividing line of, in this song. And and he talked about how he and his, his daddy would take him for a ride and they, they'd look up at the mansion on the hill where people were, were singing, dancing, playing. And it's it's obviously struck a, hu a huge chord with him, and and it sounds like his father also had similar similar issues with with, with that kind of class separation. Just going down to um, going to look at the mansion on the hill, driving there sounds like they did it on more than one occasion. So he was kind of um, kind of I don't want to say obsessed, but certainly it was very very prominent in his mind after he spent eight hours working in the factory or driving a taxi or being unemployed. Yeah, and and of course, because we know the end of the story here, Bruce pretty much has his own mansion on the hill now, where which is filled with life and filled with artistic creation. And while I'm certainly very happy for him, and I, I think we all are, that he was able to accomplish that. And we know this is an important song to him. He often plays it with Patty. And looking at the way that they've performed in recent years, do you think he himself is acknowledging the fact that he has created this home with Patty and sort of created his own spot that is the mansion on the hill? That's a, that's a very good question. I'm sure he must be aware of it. I mean, he has to be aware of it. He's a very self-aware person, actually. But I wonder if he knows that people come to look at his house. And actually, I'm sure he does, that people go to uh, his He has house to know that, yeah. As that's now the mansion on the hill for a lot of people. Of course, we're not looking at it because we're, we're working class and he's uh, the fat cast that he talked about in, uh, in Easy Money. But we're looking at it for a different reason, but we're still looking at it. 
And the class issues are are undeniable when you have – and we, I think he's probably closing in on a billion dollars. You, you can't avoid that from the other side. And we know that he is fully aware of that. As you note, he is completely self-aware and we, we know he's very charitable and that he looks out for people who are in need many times without even – any publicity, but it is an interesting juxtaposition in terms of where he winds up, especially when you think of his what was going on in his life and and the fact even as you pointed out, he was on a farm in Colts Neck, hiding out, pretty much sheltered in place. And I'm going to guess that the farm he was living at at the time, I mean, we know he had a little money after the river tour, but I, I'm sure it was nothing like the home he has built now, <laughs> to say the least. No, not at all. I mean, the house house he's built now in Colesnack, I mean, they keep adding stuff onto it from what, from what I understand. So it's almost a whole compound now, whereas I'm sure that the house that— Well, we've seen some insight into it, and, and I mean, certainly everything we've seen, I mean, it is a magnificent space, the outdoor <laughs> space, the studio. So, and as I said, I mean, you can't help but be happy for him. And, and looking at it here in 2022, it's a remarkable thing that the guy who writes Mansion on the Hill 41 years ago or so winds up in this space. And, and in a way, I, I think— don't you think it really does sort of speak to the American dream, which he was getting to on this record? Of course, it, I think looking almost in a negative fashion, but it, it turns out he, he is the personification of the American dream. What, what, don't you agree? <laughs> he, yeah, he is. He came from nothing. He worked his ass off. Uh, he was focused and he, and he achieved his dreams and, and the wealth. But at the same time, this, this, this album, these songs are about the loss of that American dream, how it doesn't always it doesn't always work out for people, and I and I think no. to me to me that stands out more on this album than than his own achievement of it even just a few years later. Well, of course, at the time he was writing this record, it was a time of tremendous economic upheaval in the United States. Now we're going through another inflationary period, but nothing really like what went on in the early '80s when interest rates. I. I forget, I think they went to 17, 18%. It was really a bad time. And that's reflected, of course, in the next song. We'll get to Johnny 99. The Ford plant that he's writing about in the song closed in June of 1980. Yes, I was going to say the one difference between that time and now is that at that point, in the early 80s there, as you said, there was a rampant unemployment. Oh, yeah, much worse than now. Of course, we have fairly low unemployment still, thankfully, right now. Yes, and so that was a main difference going on there. And and this is one of the examples that Bruce Bruce talked about. When you lose connection to, to your family, your friends, your society, and, and in this particular situation in Johnny 99, your job, you lose your job and what else do you have? And just obviously Ralph or Johnny, as he would later be called, didn't have any didn't have any of those kind of support systems. And he got got too drunk. And that was it. The economic displacement in the song leads to the narrator to do something, which, of course, gets him arrested. And, and as the song goes, 
puts him on that killing line. And, and really, that's what was happening in the country at the time. People were were really desperate. And, and, and Bruce captured that here. I mean, I think in Johnny 99, he probably captured the desperation perhaps better than any other song he's ever written. Can you think of another song where where that's reflected in, in the manner that we get here? The only other option I can think of is, is Highway 29 from the Ghost of Tom Joad. Yeah, that one's pretty dark, too, actually, now that you're bringing it up. Yeah, where it's where somebody, they uh, they weren't unemployed, but, they, but something switched in their head that uh, made them rob the bank and and kill the clerk or kill the kill the teller and before they drive off a cliff film on louise style but i can't but you're right this one really does capture that it's really in some ways it's not that different than, than state trooper except this guy in state trooper hasn't been caught yet but yeah he this guy has no, no he has debts no honest man could could pay and that line again yeah about he's about to lose the house his house and He's just like, screw it. Just just uh, put me on that uh, on the execution line. Put me in the chair. Yeah. And Brian pointed out in his book, and it is interesting because Bruce apparently wanted to cut the that's no honest man can pay line from one of the two songs. But because of the manner in which they had recorded, it wasn't possible. And and I think that that actually when I read that, I was like. I get that it's repetitive because it's the same line in two songs, but in a way it becomes a perfect through line for the record. And I think artistically, it doesn't bother me at all that the line is in both songs because it's really reflecting what these characters are going through. It's as simple as they have debts that no honest man can pay and and they're out there in the world that's causing them to do things that are illegal and perhaps unethical, but it's not coming from a place that they're necessarily bad people. Now, it's Starkweather <laughs> is a bad guy, but the, the character in Johnny 99, do you, do you think this is a bad person? No, he, he's not. He just, uh, he lost his job. He was desperate. I think desperation causes, causes people to do desperate things, and I think that's what happened here. And once he got caught, once he did his bad thing, he killed a killed a night clerk and on trial for murder. And the, the guy wants to the judge wants to put him away for life. He's like, no, I don't want to do this anymore. The thoughts in my head are just are just too much for me to to have on a daily basis. So, so yeah, you get to the end of the song and the judge he asks the judge just just put me out of my misery, just kill me, which is very yeah, sad, I, of course. And but that's and what desperation uh, did to, did to this man. And then you move on to Highway Patrolman. Now, this is, it may be, uh, it probably is the most cinematic song that Bruce has ever written. In fact, it's so cinematic that it was made into a film, of course, by Sean Penn called The Indian Runner, who took the story of a, a cop and his criminal brother and and saw it as the dramatic piece that it was. And I think on this one, this song is sort of an outlier to me from the record because obviously the protagonist who's singing the song, the cop, is a good guy and a good guy who doesn't experience the kind of desperation in the same way economically. But here he's experiencing a desperation that's internal and it's what do I do when my own blood, my own brother is committing these acts and I'm sworn to uphold the law. 
And of course, we know by the end of the song how that resolves. It's interesting you say that because I see this song as one of the... This, this song has, has hope in it for me. It actually ends on, on a positive note. I know the guy, his brother gets away, at least for the time being, uh, gets away from being arrested for, for murder or at least assault. But he, this guy, Joe, Joe does the right thing here, or at least in his mind. So he actually is is okay with with his decision, obviously. But but yeah, this is one of the one of the few uh, few positive moments on on the whole record. Well, I, I think certainly you're right because if we, no man wants to arrest their brother, and he puts duty aside to allow his brother to escape. There is loss in there as well, because, of course, he's losing his brother, who he's probably never going to see again, which is really sad. But there's another layer here, because we know Joe has violated his oath, and that really means something to him. It does. It does. But but blood means means more. And I think he knows that if he pulls, pulls Frankie over, there's going to be a shootout, and someone's not going to walk away. And by letting this person live, at, at least for, for the time being, because I'm sure he's going to get into more trouble in Canada or he's going to for sure back, or he's going to come back into the States and, and do it again anyway. But at the, for the time being, Frank gets to walk away or drive away alive. And, and Joe gets to see his brother um, make it through an, another day. And yeah, well, it's, and that- it's a little it's it's conflicting, but I think that's that's the heart of the song that that conflict. Yeah. And he he ends with the man turns his back on his family. He ain't no good. Uh, That's how he has resolved, I think, the violation of his oath. In Joe's mind, family comes before the oath. And and that's what makes the song so powerful. I mean, because you really do get that conflict. I mean, Bruce really just the manner in which he told the story. And and I think that's why Sean Penn adapted it into a movie. That's what great movies are, conflict. And the conflict Bruce has laid out here is is really compelling. And it's really a wonderful song. It is. It was a highlight on the Joe tour. It was a highlight on the Devils and Dust tour. And and it was even a highlight, Hal, on the Secret Sessions tour. (laughs) Ah, let's not go back to that. Well, it appeared on the uh, PBS uh, promo. Yeah. I, I, I don't want to knock it. That actually wasn't a horrible version. We won't talk about the version of Open All Night on the Seeger Sessions. So. Right. But, but Highway <laughs> Patrolman, again, uh, the the version that the E Street Band did on tour, I think that was pretty much what how they recorded it in the studio. So I don't think they it, it really was any different than that. I would agree with that. And and hopefully at some point we expect we're going to hear that. It'll it'll be interesting now <laughs> to see when that will be as, as time passes on. But hope springs eternal for that 40th anniversary Born in the USA box, which is going to cover everything. Yeah. OK, let's, we'll keep dreaming for that or hoping for that. Keep your fingers crossed. I'm not exactly holding my breath, but we'll, we shall see. Now, State Trooper, this is one of my personal favorites from this record. And it's just an ultra cool song. It really is. Oh, absolutely. This is one of the few like actual pseudo rock songs on this album. I think in the darkness of it. This one, you really hear the guy's desperation. But the only thing I got's been bothering my whole life, and I, I think that's just one of the best lines in, in the song. And that's to me, that just screams desperation. He doesn't, 
something's bothering him his whole life and so he's done things that maybe he's not proud of but but he's had it but he's got a clear conscience about him well and and the whole thing it really feels again cinematic like a noir film because it's this dark tale at night on the new jersey turnpike and placing bruce in the song even though i i don't think he was conducting himself in any kind of criminal manner, but that I'm sure he drove around at night on the New Jersey Turnpike and just searching, sort of searching to find himself and maybe a little peace. What what do you think? Well, I was going to say there were times it sounds like he didn't have his license and registration with him. (laughs) Well, that's for sure. He has talked about that on stage. Yes, he has talked about that. A number of times. But yeah, Bruce is uh, certainly known for driving around searching for something. Now, I don't know exactly what the narrator and state trooper is looking for, except to be able to make it to his destination, whatever whatever that may be in this, this song. This is one, I, I wish he would do more live. Now, he did do it on the Devils and Dust tour on the Gretsch. That was a really cool version. The Born in USA tour versions are outstanding. And I think this is another song that shows the extraordinary depth of the catalog and it's, as we know, it's rarely been played in recent years. I, I was thinking about it today in its entirety. This was the only album from the classic era that wasn't done straight through. And back in 2009, we actually heard some rumors that he might set up somewhere and do it. But uh, unfortunately, it never happened. And was it maybe because he felt it couldn't be captured in the way it was on the record with the feeling of alienation and isolation. Well, that's interesting. And it would be would have been interesting to see what kind of band he put together, whether, whether it would have been E Street or whether it would have been something. something well, don't you think it would have been solo? Well, I, I don't know. I was going to get to that, whether it would have been E Street, yeah. whether it would have been some other small combo like we talked about with, with like with Steve Jordan and Nils and, and, and a bass player, or would it be solo? I, I do think he did all the Nebraska songs on the Joe tour. Um, he did you know, over, yeah. over the course of, of that tour. So you kind of have it there, although I kind of doubt they were recording multitrack every night for that, or at least something for releasable uh, for release quality. You know, he did do in two, in 2012 when he when he played Omaha, he did do what eight songs, seven songs from this album. Yeah, so, and that, that that is a show we've talked about as potentially being worthy of release. Yes, yes. But I don't think anything really captured the State Trooper performance uh, better than 84, at least in terms of a band a band arrangement, when you had that really scary, scary sound out of out of the keyboards. And coming going back to the band Suicide, they had some songs that were equally that Bruce very well may have used as inspiration for that arrangement, especially with this with the with the screams at the end of the song. Totally agree. And 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 now let's move on to used cars. Can it get more autobiographical than this? It's again a song about his youth and his parents, all they could afford were really broken down cars that they had lots of problems with. And as the narrator says I ain't going to ride in no used cars again. Now, I will point out, ironically, because, of course, we know he's a classic car collector. <laughs> he does, in fact, ride in used cars now, but he can afford any new car that he wants. So in that sense, he has achieved his dream in the song. Well, the used cars he drives in now have been fully restored by the best yes, mechanics. Totally vintage, yes. In the, state of, in the state of New Jersey. So I think 
what stands out to me most in this song is are the little little details, the imagery. Uh, Ma fingering her her wedding band. Yeah, uh, sister in the back seat with an ice cream cone. I just think it's way he captures that you you really you see the song it's not s- cinematic in the way that highway patrolman is but it's just as visual as anything he's ever written yeah you're you're totally right and and the little details here is little sister who i guess is Ginny sitting in the front seat blowing the horn and the sounds echoing down michigan avenue he he's setting a scene and you, and you really do sort of get where he was on these days as a kid. And he would later capture this again, I think. And of course, we are going to get to my father's house shortly. He he would capture this type of scene setting in Springsteen on Broadway. In a way, this is a precursor to that. And in fact, I think used cars could have very easily fit into Springsteen on Broadway. No. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That would have been that would have been fantastic. Maybe not as good as my father's house, but it would have been just as just as effective. Yeah, it's actually I'm surprised at at some point that it didn't actually make its way into the show, although we know there were very few changes during the run. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. Oh yeah, can't forget cartoons. If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar. See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums and dive bars. Hey, you know the place, the sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies. So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com. I don't know. I've never gravitated to this one, say, like State Trooper or certainly Atlantic City. I I hope this doesn't make me sound depraved, but I I just love Nebraska. It's so chilling. Uh, The entire noir field to it and the entire record is a, a perspective that I think is pretty unique to rock and roll. And to me, this one is lacking that. So I think that's why those tracks stand out more to me than Used Cars does. One of the aspects of Used Cars is that it's very specific to his background. That scene probably happened several times over the course of his childhood. So it's kind of specific to him or at least specific to, to that kind of situation. Whereas something like Atlantic City and State Trooper, they're kind of they're, kind of, they're somewhat universal. He doesn't get in, into the same specifics on State Trooper about there are no details about the, the gun sitting on my lap or the 
with the blood on my hands that that would those would be the same kind of details that you would find in state trooper that you would find in that are found in used cars I, i'm just like as as kind of a comparison as an e- even comparison i'm not saying there were blood on the guy's hands and at the at the used car lot but they're very kind of parallel and so i think that's one reason it doesn't really it may it may not connect with you with you as much another thing about this song is that i think it's kind of of follows up on mansion on the hill obviously but because of the of the class issues i mean this guy the narrator the the bruce bruce as a child you can tell he's very resentful that his father has to buy these these crappy cars these crappy cheap cars are going to break down in six months or or his dad's going to have to be on the ground at 6 a.m. trying to get it started just to go to work. And so, so they, he really means it when uh, the day his number comes in. He ain't ever going to ride a no-use car again. He's, See, I, he's making a vow to himself there that this, this is not going to happen to him. Right. See, I think that Mansion on the Hill is a little bit more effective. And, and we didn't mention it. We we're going to talk about the influence of the record. Mansion on the Hill is one of his most covered songs and we'll save that till the end but i don't know that this song registers in the same way and even bruce himself mansion on the hill comes up again and again as i mentioned it's a song that he plays with patty use cars he doesn't use anywhere near as much no but I, and i think again it's because it's it's so specific there's there's no generalization to it that even mansion on the hill has now let's move on to open all night which is a great rockabilly song and has always i think for a lot of fans it's a personal favorite it's the most rocking song on the record it's got a fun element to it and we've talked about the new jersey 92 archive release the version he does there which is includes a lengthy hilarious story about a run-in at bob's big boy and sort of full band version of the song this is one that I, I i think a lot of people really like it's the closest thing to a fun fun rock song yeah <laughs> on this on this album i guess we talked about i talked about state trooper being being kind of a rock song but this one is a fun rock song and certainly on the 84 tour he he, he introed the song with a lot of fun a lot of fun quips about trying to get home to his baby and eating a sandwich and I guess giving her sexual favors and eating a sandwich yeah. and getting sexual favors. And then, of course, you know, on some points on the tour, he talked about getting pulled over and the cops like, oh, I know who you are. You're that rock star. And he's like, yeah, well, son, you're yeah. in a lot of trouble. <laughs> you know what this actually, as we're talking about it, thinking about, I remember there was that article, the tunnel tour, where he told the interviewer that in the middle of the first set originally, he was going to throw in Darlington County just to loosen things up. Right. And then and he decided, no, I don't want to do that. But in a way, that's the function that Open All Night is serving here in the in the midst of all this desperation, alienation, and isolation. Now, you got a lot of minute details like we've talked about in some of the other songs, like you were just talking about in Used Cars, the fried chicken on the front seat, <laughs> and we're wiping our fingers on a Texaco roadmap, and it's just a fun one. And yes, it's in the set, in middle of all this desperation. And this character's probably not doing too well either. You would agree, right? <laughs> yeah, but he's having fun with his girl, Wanda, especially up on Scrap Metal Hill. <laughs> it's when they're having a lot of fun. <laughs> You're very caught up on that. 
I am. But I kind of view this as kind of a, a kind of a flip side of State Trooper. They're both riding on the New Jersey Turnpike, basically. Uh, but one is hiding from something or trying to escape something, and, and this guy is trying to get to his baby. Yeah, and we have to talk about the end of the song. Uh, radio's jammed up with gospel stations. Hey, Mr. DJ, won't you hear my last prayer? Hey, ho, rock and roll, deliver me from nowhere. That that, that distills the Bruce Springsteen mindset, I think, at the time, <laughs> down to one line. That rock and roll needed to deliver him from nowhere. And, and as I often reference in 2022, we know it did deliver him. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, it did. And that's now, it, that, isn't that line also? Uh, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say that same line is, is the last line of State Trooper. So they really are. They're, they're parallels, or at least flip sides, as I said. It's this very similar. Just one is one's a dark song and one's a very fun song. Fascinating, really. Uh, the, the manner in which he wove this all together. And it's like I was saying with the line that repeats from Johnny 99 in Atlantic City. Now, it seems like it, almost in a way the, the repetition of some of these songs is intentional uh, even if he later wanted to cut it out uh, he he really did sort of link all of this together yeah he kind of he did us a favor by doing that he made it really easy to co to connect the themes and uh, yeah and to to put these songs to link these songs very in a very direct and, and overt way well, you also get in terms of connecting themes, and that's I think one of the reasons why we started this show to look at the line that runs from early Springsteen to late Springsteen. As I was saying, so many of these themes resurface in Springsteen on Broadway, and it's so interesting because he has really remained focused on a lot of these same issues and and these internal battles for for such a long period of time. I mean, we're talking about works almost four decades apart, and and yet the, it all fits together. And, and look, that's why his body of work, I think, rises to the level that it does. And, and certainly you and I are going to agree that unless you're going to take someone like the Beatles or Dylan, then it's arguable. But other than people like a few handful of people like that, there's never any artist who has put together a body of work that is so significantly tells one large story. Yep. Agree with you 100%. There's, you listen to all, all those albums in a row, I think you get, you get a heck of a story there. You, the themes weaving in and out, characters coming, coming in and going. Whether he intended to do that or not, he he has achieved it in, in such a fantastic yeah. way. As we fall and, over and, him yet again. <laughs> well, look, you can't help but, and this is a highly influential album, as I mentioned, and as we're going to talk about in a little bit more detail. Th this really is an amazing piece of work that when you line up the albums in a row, especially starting with Born to Run and, and concluding with Born in the USA, they do all fit together, especially Darkness, The River, Nebraska, and then Born in the USA. And, and that's certainly very emblematic with the next song, My Father's House. Look at the significance this song was given in Springsteen on Broadway. Of course, it came early in the show to set up the emotional arc, one that highlighted an internal battle within himself 
and also the external battle that really existed between him and his dad. Yeah, this song is uh, yeah, very the emotional center of, of, of any father, of all the father-son songs in his catalog, and, and there are several. This one shows the, the fear that he had of never connecting with his father ever. Obviously, they had their fights that he he well documented when uh, when he was in his teens, and it took a long time for them to to kind of to reconcile. And someone would even say was even or Bruce may even say was it really until they had that had that uh, talk right before Evan was born in the summer of 1990. But this song shows the fear that he had that he wouldn't be able to connect with his father on an emotional level. He was in, in 1981 or 1982. And the themes here really, one of the most significant ones is, and it's contained in the second to last verse, when he walks up the steps to the house and a woman he doesn't recognize comes out and speaks to him because he's returned to the house. That is a theme that he has used over and over again, the the search, the going back to Freehold to try and find something. And of course, it is most recently reflected in the tree that is the emotional centerpiece of Springsteen on Broadway. And when I was listening to the song yesterday, when I went through the entire record, the other one that I thought about was the Audrey story from 1988. Now that was only told a couple of times because it was way too long (laughs) and he jettisoned it. But that was such an emotional story about the, the returning back to a house in his neighborhood years later and feeling the guilt because Audrey was this woman who was abused and he hadn't done anything as a child. And and then he goes back years later and he sees the woman and he feels tremendous shame. I, it all ties together with the themes in the song, no? What I think about when I hear this song is about going, talks about going back to driving through his old hometown and driving through his the homes where his family lived was the intro to this song at the Christic shows. Yeah. He was, he was talking, he was telling his therapist about it, how he goes back and, and he drives there and he's, and therapist says, well, you're going back and something bad happened there and you're trying to fix it. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. The therapist said, well, you can't. And to me, that's the most, that's one of the most powerful things that Bruce has ever said. And I guess, and he's quoting He's quoting his therapist of all people. Oh, I, I think you just totally nailed it. And, and if you compare the Audrey story as one example, which came before the Christic, and the way he uses the tree years later in Broadway, I think it definitely shows some growth. To me, the Broadway telling is more reflective of understanding that you can't go back and change things. Well, I mean, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about, about that. But at the same time, what the Audrey story, to me, what I heard was that he was going back to his family and to his friends and to his neighborhood, his current friends, family and neighborhood. Whereas, but he's still driving back to those neighborhoods all those years later. And, you know, he, he was even doing that when he was talking about the tree on Broadway. Presence of my father's house so early in the show, he's sort of setting up the tension. This is the tension of his life. That's yeah. why it starts with growing up, and that's why the wish is there. He's setting up the tension in his life that has existed the entire time. And at the end of Springsteen on Broadway, he's come far, I think, from my father's house, and he has a sense of resolution. It may not be a perfect sense of resolution, <laughs> and he may still be going back to freehold looking for a piece of his youth. But I think that the 
issues reflected in this song have he's made peace with by the end of spring scene on broadway you agree with that no yes i do i absolutely agree now as i listened to this album the other day uh, in preparation for for this recording the last verse of this song you used the word to describe the last verse of moonlight motel and it's devastating and to me the last verse of this song is absolutely devastating he really puts it out cold and and it and it hits in a way that just it's almost difficult to listen to and uh he really nailed it yeah for me at that time and of course it leads into reason to believe and as Brian points out in his book, Bruce told Marsh that Reason to Believe was the bottom. It was the, the bleakest, I think the darkest that he, he he could get. And it's interesting because really the sense, if you take just the title of Reason to Believe, in a way it's the perfect payoff to this record because you would look at it and go, okay, all this isolation and darkness and alienation – but at the end of every hard-earned day, people find some reason to believe. But I guess he's using it a bit sardonically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's wonder. He's actually wondering how people find a reason to believe. He, he is yeah. mystified that people are able to keep going, and then they have, and they have a reason to keep going. And because for him, obviously, he there were many, many days he probably didn't see that he didn't see a reason to keep going a reason to keep doing what he was doing and and that's to me that's where this song probably came from yeah it, and if you look at it in that sense uh, the <laughs> the blackness of the stories that he's telling the the dead dog lying in the ditch and the 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 lost loves and and the preacher standing with his Bible and the groom waiting for the bride who never arrives. It, you do wonder, and, and, and sometimes you read stories in the paper, terrible, tragic stuff, and how do these people go on? And, and, and that appears to be the question that he's posing here. In, in the face of loss and isolation, how do you get up every day? And, and, I think we talked about this in the very first episode of the show when we talked about Western stars and the title track there, the guy just wanting to to, to wake up in the morning and, and basically still be breathing. It's a line that runs through decades of his work. And I think it really plays out on City of Ruins. How do I begin again there? How do you get, how do you move on from 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 tragedy and. And of course, in this song, it's not even really tragedy. It's how do you just how do you move on, period? Whether it's right, I, I think that's a good point because I mean these circumstances that he's describing here are, are sad. A groom waiting for his bride and the bride not showing up is is devastating. But it's also it's not. And you bring up City of Ruins, which of course, even though it was written for Asbury became very tied to 9-11, uh, a man being spurned at the altar is not 9-11. So this is day-to-day -day horrible circumstances that are occurring in, in, in Reason to Believe and, and stuff that pretty much every one of us at some point in our lives probably will need to overcome. The Later on, when you deal with uh, especially the rising, which comes out of just, I mean, monstrous tragedy, to me, that's totally different. 
It is, but at the same time, I, I, the line in and of itself, how do I begin again, could apply to this. Yes. I know, you know, how does the jilted groom get up the next morning? He's, he has to find another reason to believe. And But the narrator of the song, he's he's not sure how anyone can find that, that reason, that reason to believe, that reason to get up the next morning and, and exist. Yeah, and if you think of some of the songs on The Rising, most specifically, you're missing, how does that character get up? day after day after day and 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 the detail in which everything was laid out there it, it just that's why these things tie back together how does the character in you're missing find some reason to believe that's the question that we're asking for that he's, he was asking way back back then 20 nearly 20 years prior to that horrible day and he must have, he must have written this from a very from a very depressed depressed state how do fi- people find a reason to believe and it was so interesting when he did it on the Magic Tour. I mean, that, oh. that was like the highlight of the show for, for me. Oh, I, just... I remember the first time you and I were standing next to one another, and he, that was the first Meadowlands rehearsal show. And the when that started and we realized what it was, it was just like, holy crap, <laughs> what is happening here? Yeah, worked really well there. Mixed results on the, on, uh, on the Devils and Dust Tour with, with the bullet mic, but... We'll sit, I think we've already discussed that, but yeah, phenomenal version on on that tour. I think every version of this song is pretty much is very strong. Even if uh, you, you may not have liked the bullet mic in in two thousand five. Yeah, I didn't mind it, and, and I do want to point out. Uh, speaking of the Magic Tour, the Boston show, which is released as an archive, one of the most stunning moments I think of the whole tour was on that show when Reason to Believe goes into darkness. Uh, just mm. chilling. Yes. Yeah, that was a hell of a segue. There was one B-side, The Big Payback. It is another rave-up rocker. I don't know if it would have fit on the album. What do you think? Um, I don't know if it could have fit on in place of Open All Night. Open All Night is certainly a better song, but the fact that he talks about getting a knife long and black at at the end, I think uh, that kind of saves it thematically for, for this batch of songs. And to wrap things up, let's talk about how influential this record is. With other artists, this may be his most impactful album. At least two songs on here, Mansion on the Hill and Atlantic City, are among his most covered songs. Yeah, there have been several covers, several excellent covers. I'm thinking of Atlantic City. I'm thinking LeVon Helm. I guess, I don't know, was that with the band or with, with other musicians? Yes. yes, the band did a version of Atlantic City. Excellent, excellent version. And then The Hold Steady also did a great version of it. And... The great Emmy Lou Harris does an amazing version of Mansion on the Hill. She has such a lovely voice, and she really, I don't know, it might almost be better for me <laughs> than Bruce's original. Yeah, her version is truly top-notch. And I also just want to mention Jason Isbell's version of Atlantic City, which is on his EP Live from Welcome to 1979. And that is a rip-roaring take on the song now. Jason is just, he's an incredible artist, an incredible guitar player. And if you haven't heard that, it's on streaming. You should check it out. And otherwise, Johnny Cash has covered this record. Kelly Clarkson (laughs) cited this record as an influence when she moved from more mainstream to edgier material with her album my december the killers brandon flowers has mentioned this album as as an inspiration 
I think the pureness in the writing and the process by which it was recorded is really what captures these artists. Well, I'm not a songwriter at all, but I can see where they're coming from. This is pure songwriting. That's what's highlighted on this record. It's not... It's not diluted by a sax solo as great as Clarence's sax solos are. There's, it takes away a little bit from the purity of, of the lyrics, and it just comes straight through. I think visceral is always a, a word I've I've heard to, to describe the songwriting on this, and, and that's pure Bruce, as as you said. And it is so cinematic, as we mentioned, of course, Sean Penn's movie, The Indian Runner. But when you think about Johnny Cash covering Johnny 99 and Highway Patrolman, it, it, it's so perfect. And, of course, later in his career, he did really capture sort of an ethos with covers. I, I think of his cover of Hurt, which is perhaps definitive. Yeah. And there's something here that people have gravitated to i think as you were just saying it is it is the pureness and 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 the rawness of it and that is why these singer songwriters in particular really have fallen in love with this record absolutely as as you just said a, a few minutes ago it's just pure bruise and this is where his songwriting i think comes out more than really on any other record and now next time we're going to take a look at sort of the flip side of this record when we move to board in the USA and, and the songwriting there, particularly on the title track, is pretty damn impressive as well. Well, considering it came from the same sessions, it shouldn't be a surprise at all. And it's interesting that we're going to look at the, the transition of the song originally written as Child Bride and a very depressing song about a man who ends up in prison for statutory rape, basically, into a, a rollick working on the highway so the songwriter can go in many directions depending on the music it really was an incredibly fertile period for him and i know we're going to talk about that more in detail next time just the number of songs and and the different arrangements it, really incredible and as we said earlier in the show fingers crossed that someday all of that is going to be done justice in a proper box set yeah fingers legs whatever all toes crossed for, for that one day and with that we're going to wrap things up here as i mentioned our next full episode will be a look at born in the usa which fits perfectly with what we've done tonight but prior to that if we do get the expected announcement of the soul record we will of course pop on and give our impressions on what the single sounds like and and what the news is and we're really looking forward to that yes we are we're looking forward to discussing something new not something 40 years old yes although nothing wrong with the 40 year old <laughs> stuff either <laughs> that is true especially when it was from basically bruce's prime as as a creative force yes so true and and here are the details of our show none but the brave is produced by Bull Market Entertainment and presented by Evergreen Podcasts. On the web, you can find us at nonebutthebravepodcast.com, on Twitter at NBTB Podcast. So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flynn McLean saying thanks for listening, and we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal the Man, to Fat Mike from No Effects, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, 
We go all over the map from Fallout Boy to Slayer. Peer pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media.